Please turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Psalms. The second psalm is one of the great psalms of Scripture. It starts off with a resounding statement as it describes the revolt of the heathen against God. The revolt of the nations against God. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Notice the conduct of the nations here. Uh, they rage. Uh, they're in revolt against God. Uh, question of the psalmist, exclamation. He's astonished at this wickedness and at the folly of this, at the vain hopelessness of it. Why do they imagine a vain and impossible thing? Uh, the consultation of these nations. It says, uh, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Uh, this is a premeditated, uh, concerted revolution against God. Notice the objects of the revolt. Against God, against the Lord, and against His anointed. His Messiah is the Hebrew word. Uh, from this verse in uh, Daniel 9:26, which says, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The term Messiah came to be a common designation in Old Testament Israel for this promised deliverance king, deliver a king that God was going to send. And uh, the revolt is directed against the Lord and against the Messiah, or the anointed one of the Lord. The conduct, the casting off. Of restraints. Verse 3, let us break their bands asunder, they say, and cast away their cords from us. They want to be free from God's restraints. Uh, the object is to cast off God's commands on their lives and to be their own masters. They don't want God ruling over them. You remember Jesus' parable in Luke 19 about a certain nobleman who is given a kingdom, but he has to go away to a far country to the head of the empire to receive the country over which he's to be king, to receive that authority, and then return. And as he goes away, the citizens of that country send word out to him, and they say, we will not have this man to reign over us. That's the attitude of the human heart toward God that's being pictured here. We will not have this man, God's Messiah, to reign over us. The culmination of this revolt, the height of this revolt, is described in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4. After the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, some thousand years after this psalm was written, the disciples, as they go out to preach the glad message of the Son of God and call men to repentance, are called in by the highest court there in the nation of Israel and commanded and threatened not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Peter and John go back to the disciples' group with that word and report, and the whole group lifts up their hearts in prayer. And they pray like this, O Lord, you made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. And uh, long ago, by the mouth of your servant David, in the second psalm, you said, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? 
the kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They said, you prophesied that, and of a truth, against your holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. They all, just like the psalm said, were in revolt against you and against your Messiah, and they killed him. Years ago, early in this country, 1700s, famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, preached a famous sermon, sparked the Great Awakening, the Great Revival that swept this country and elsewhere. The sermon was, Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Men cried out under that sermon, Stop, man! We can't stand that kind of preaching! But God could stand it and God used it. But this isn't sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is God in the hands of angry sinners. And it culminated in the death of Jesus Christ. Charles Simeon, famous preacher, and about the same time, a couple of hundred years ago, over in England, graduated from Cambridge, was taken, took a little church there, Church of England church, near the campus, and began to proclaim with power the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And as he did, he became an object of ridicule. The people in the church wouldn't attend, and they locked their pews that they owned, so no one could sit in their pews. And people sat in the aisles. And they threw, people stood outside and threw rocks through the windows. When he walked on the campus of Cambridge, his own school, he said it was years before anyone would be seen walking with him. He was such an object of derision. Here's what Simeon wrote. He later became, in time, a great force for Christ. Here's what he wrote. Christ is still, as formerly, opposed by all ranks of men. It was the requiring of all persons to submit entirely and unreservedly to the dominion of Christ that irritated and inflamed the whole world against the early preachers of Christianity. This, Thus, at this time, if we only brought forward the great truths of the gospel in a speculative way, no man would be offended with us. Multitudes of preachers preach that way, and they don't upset anybody. But the practical exhibition of divine truth, the showing that all men must receive it at peril of their soul, souls, the insisting upon an entire surrender of their souls to Christ to be washed in his blood, be forgiven through his death as their only hope. This is the offense. Then we are fanatics. Exactly. Well, we see the revolt of the nations against God. Notice the reaction of God in verse uh, 4. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. This is derision. While the nations and the kings exhort each other to cast off his restraints, he reposes far above them, calmly reigning. He laughs. Uh, here's uh, contemptuous security on his part, a vivid expression of that in the impotency of man against God. He holds them in derision. He that sitteth in the la heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Luther said, Who would have thought that when Jesus suffered on the cross. God was laughing all the time. Not laughing at Jesus' suffering, but laughing 
at the absurdity of those who rebel against him and unknowingly in their revolt are carrying out his very plan for the establishing of his Messiah and his kingdom. That passage we quoted from Acts 4 about uh, the prophecy and then the fulfillment of a truth against thy holy child Jesus whom thou hast anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, uh, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. And here's the rest of it. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. As they killed your son, God in the hands of angry sinners, they were establishing your plan and carrying it out. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel had determined before to be done. All the evil came out of their own heart, not from God. But God in his wondrous, amazing way took that evil had planned ahead to let it erupt, channeled it, used it to establish his kingdom. Remember all the details that he predicted ahead. Thirty pieces of silver his son would be betrayed for. And what would happen to those thirty pieces of silver? That he'd die with wicked men, that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, that they would throw dice for his garments. Every item under his control and a part of his plan. And Jesus said, This commandment I received to my Father, that I lay down my life for the sheep. No man takes it from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. When they came to take him, he told Peter, Put up your sword. How else shall the Scripture be fulfilled, which say that it must be so? Now, we see God's derision. Notice his declaration in verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them, in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. This repose, this laughing, this seeming indifference doesn't last. The time comes when God speaks to them in his sore displeasure, his anger, and vexes them in his wrath. Notice what he answers in verse 6. Yet, in spite of this revolt, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, Men will revolt. It will be God in the hands of angry sinners. But my king will be established in his kingdom. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Zion was the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. And it became a symbol for the the capital of God's kingdom. His king would be established in his throne. Well, they killed Christ, and they buried him, and they sealed the stone, and they put a guard there. And three days later, right on time, he burst forth from that tomb. No way that he wouldn't be established, because God said, Yet have I set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he would go forth to erect his kingdom in the hearts of men. Well, we see the uh, revolt of the nations, the response of God. Notice the revelation of God's decree in verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Who's speaking here? Early the nation spoke, Let us cast his cords from us. And then God spoke, Yet have I set, set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now it's the king speaking. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now remember, we're reading something that was written a thousand B.C. But he's referring to a statement 
that was made to him long before that. He's referring, the king is referring to a statement that was made to him. And David is given a revelation of this. It was made to the king in the councils of eternity. Before the world was ever created, God the Father said to God the Son, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. What's the substance of this decree of God in regard to his king? Number one, uh, the fact of his sonship, that his king would be God the Son. Thou art my son. Now, that sonship is eternal, but the inauguration as the king is not eternal. Now, this day have I begotten thee is not saying that at some point God the Son didn't exist. He's always existed, just like God the Father has always existed. But he's inaugurated as king. And that sonship of his is declared publicly. It's seen and understood when he's raised from the dead. He's, he based finally... He has claimed to be God the Son on his resurrection. Destroy this temple. What sign do you give? Destroy this temple. Speaking of the temple of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. And he did. And as Romans 1.4 says, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Second thing that's part of this decree, the establishment of his kingdom as a universal kingdom. Ask of me, says the Father to the Son, And I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. I will establish your kingdom as a worldwide kingdom. Men from every tongue and tribe and nation will come and make you their king in their hearts. Here we sit, 3,000 years later, the heathen given to him for his inheritance. And still that kingdom spreads. It spreads as you and I go forth with a message of a God in the hand of angry sinners, then raised and set upon the holy hill of Zion, to whom the heathen have been given for an inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. Notice the third thing, the promise of victory over all of his enemies. Verse 9, where it says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The extensive grant the heathen for his inheritance, is accompanied with power adequate to hold this territory, these hearts. That power is to be exercised in wrath as well as in mercy. The wrath is prominent. Thou wilt break them with a rod of iron because the revolt is prominent in the passage. The New Testament way of saying thou wilt break them with a rod of iron is to say that men will perish who do not come to Jesus Christ that the king one day will sit on his throne and he will have all people gathered before him. And he'll say to those on his right hand, Come ye blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he'll say to those on the left, Depart ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So uh, men perish. Men are broken with a rod of iron who don't respond to the king. Remember again uh, in Jesus' parable that we referred to earlier, those who said, we will not have this man to reign over us 
When the king returns, he says, Call those my enemies who would not that I reigned over them and slay them before me. Luther, commenting on this psalm, said, If I were our Lord God and had committed the government to my son as God has to his son, and those vile people were as disobedient as they now be, I would knock the world in pieces. And God will. The day will come when God will knock the world in pieces because of its disobedience. But he's delaying, says Peter in Second Peter 3, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he won't delay forever. And the day will come when he'll knock the world in pieces. And meanwhile, he will knock you in pieces. He'll break you like a potter's vessel, says the psalmist, if you do not respond, if you continue in your revolt. Well, we have a recommendation to us. Verse 10, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Be wise, ye businessmen. Be wise, ye doctors. Be wise, ye lawyers. Be wise, ye housewives. Be wise, ye young people. Be wise, ye older people. Listen, learn, understand God's authority and sovereignty and His kingdom. He has a recommendation. What we do, cease our revolt. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Instead of revolting, serve the Lord with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Serve Him in the way He requires by acknowledging His Messiah as your rightful sovereign. And you will shout with joy for His mercy. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Kiss the Son. Kiss that was an ancient way of declaring your allegiance, of bending the knee, of expressing your devotion to his person and his cause. Kiss the son. He gives a reason here. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish from the way, the way to heaven, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Ye sinners... Seek His grace, whose wrath you cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of His cross and find salvation there. To do so, to yield our will to Him and kiss the Son, embrace the Son by repentance and faith, brings blessing. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. When I come to Jesus Christ and I surrender my will to Him, as my master, I cease my revolt, I say, I will have this man to reign over me. And I trust this man who was God in the hands of angry sinners and died for me. I trust him to cleanse me from the guilt of my rebellion. When I do that, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Blessed with forgiveness of sins. Blessed with adoption into his family. Blessed with transformation as he comes to live within. Blessed with a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Blessed with a destiny blessed with a future with Him. Blessed. What's our response to this? Christian, you look at the world in revolt and your heart trembles, doesn't it? What an awful world it is. 
What's it coming to? You see the build-up of arms in the Soviet Union. What are they going to do with all that build? You think you're spending all that money for nothing? You think that gap between our armament and their armament, which gets wider and wider, what do you think they're going to do? You look at America and the rest of the world, and you see all of the pornography and the homosexuality and the abortion, a world in revolt. The world's coming unglued, isn't it? And we tend to come unglued. But if the world's coming unglued, it's coming unglued on time, on schedule. Because God sits in the heavens. And He is in control. Men, when it culminated, men were doing whatsoever His hand and His counsel determined before to be done. Our God reigns. What's the answer to us becoming unglued when the world becomes unglued? The answer is this perspective of history. But then what do we do? We sit back. What do those early disciples do when they looked at the revolt? And they were threatened by that revolt. They prayed. They said, oh, Lord, look at this. And they've carried out that revolt. And they've killed your son, just like you said they would. Now they're threatening us. And we pray thee, have us excused. Is that what they said? No. Know what they said? They said, they were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, O Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake the word of God with boldness. They were of one heart and one soul. Great grace was upon them all, and with great power gave they witness of the resurrection. They said, God... The world's in revolt, and we're sent to the world. Be with us now as we go out. Give us boldness. Give us courage to tackle that world in revolt and to tell them about a God in the hand of angry sinners who loves still and who offers forgiveness and who's delaying knocking the world in pieces so that missions could be carried out and evangelism could be done and men could be told of the love of God and the danger that they're in when they revolt and the folly of it. What about it? That's where EE and missions and all these other things come in. Some present here who are in revolt. The attitude of your heart, the language of your heart, whether you say it or not, I will not have this man to reign over me. That's the language of your heart. If you haven't submitted your will, if you haven't kissed the Son, you see what folly it is to oppose him? God has set his king on his holy hill of Zion. And he does rule with a rod of iron. He holds out a scepter of grace. We see what makes God laugh. Do you remember what made Jesus cry? He looked at the city of Jerusalem with all the offers it had had from God. And he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. And he wept. If you're in revolt, if the language of your heart is, I will not have this man to reign over me, change, repent, kiss the Son, trust Him, yield to Him. P.T. Forsythe said, the purpose of life 
is not to find your freedom, but to find your master. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed before the King, who sat on his holy hill of Zion, have you kissed him and embraced him? And then trust him when the world comes unglued and ask him to give you boldness to go to that world in revolt and proclaim his kingship and his offer of forgiveness, to fill you with his spirit, to use you. But if your heart's language has been, I will not have this man to reign over me, right now change. Kiss the Son. Bow. Give your allegiance to Him. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I will have you to reign over me. I've been that one in revolt. What folly. And Lord, I trust you to cleanse me from the guilt of that rebellion and change me within by your blood and spirit. Come right now. Amen.